You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er fam, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode's guest is Dr. Terrell Connor. Terrell is the co-host of the Black and Highly Dangerous podcast, and he's an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the State University of New York, New Paltz, where he serves as director of the department's criminology concentration. Now, Terrell is a first-generation college student. After receiving a BA in psychology from Hampton University, one of the most well-known HBCUs on the planet, he relocated to Indiana, of all places, where he earned his MS and PhD in sociology from Purdue University, where African-American students make up just 3.6% of the population. During our conversation, Terrell and I discussed how he navigated such a drastic change in environment. We also got into how he landed in academia after originally having his sights set on business. We chatted about his ongoing community activism and how his podcast is working working to bridge the gap between academia and the people. And last but certainly not least, we touched on how he's doing all of this while being married to a woman who is equally as accomplished. I really think you're going to enjoy this interview. So without further ado, please take a listen. Dr. Connor, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you this morning? I'm great. I'm glad, glad to be here. You know, I'm tripping out because this is a good day. This is like family. This uh-huh. isn't um, just a regular interview where I meet people in person for the first time. Not at all. We uh we go way, way back. We go back like youth services and revivals. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Good old Word Up Ministries. Shout so, out to Word uh, Up. Shout out to Word Up Ministries, Pastor Patty James. Um, we have known each other for at this point, what? Uh, like like over 20 years? It gotta be. It gotta be, yeah. I, I'm I'm a little bit older. <laughs> um, you were running with Demarcus and mm-hmm. that crew. However, mm-hmm. our families went to the same church yeah. back in the day. So we have a, a long, long history. Mm-hmm. And in the years since, you have accomplished a whole lot, which makes me incredibly proud. And I'm happy to have you today Mm -hmm. and to talk about all those things. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. You know, just getting started, I just want to shout out you and Demarcus, you know, doing this podcasting and careers wise and all that stuff. You know, it's been inspiring to say the least. Uh, You know, we come from, like we said, similar roots coming from Word Up Ministries, but watching you all work and and how this podcast has grown in the past year, because I know you recently had one year as Mm -hmm. well. And, you know, it's just, like I said, inspiring and it feels good to see people that you grew up with do amazing things and really touch the community in a lot of ways. So I just want to say shout out to you all for doing what you do because it really means a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I feel like we're going to have like the ministry team and foreign, former you know youth leaders commenting <laughs> on, on this one quite a bit. Y'all go ahead. So, uh, yeah, you're right. So I guess we should keep it PG, right? For yes, the, for the holy folks. keep it PG because they're, they're all going to be on this one. The, the holy folks are going to be on this interview. Uh, uh, but let's jump into it. Mm-hmm. Tell us, who is Terrell Connor? Terrell Connor, I think um, first and foremost, you know, like we said before, you know, I'm a man of God. Um, that's how I was raised. Um, but outside of that, you know, I'm a husband um, and I'm shout out to my wife, Kristen. Uh, I got to shout her out. And, but beyond that, as far as my, my lifestyle, I would say I would consider myself a scholar activist mm-hmm. in a lot of ways um, that I've earned my PhD a few years ago. And since then, you know, I've I've and we can we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit as far as my 
how I perceive myself to be in the, in the world of academia. Um, but I would say I'm a, I would call myself, class myself as a scholar activist. Awesome. So let's break that down a little bit. Mm-hmm. What is scholar activism? Yeah. Really? Scholar activism to me is, and I guess we'll take a, a step back because when we talk about scholarship and academia, a lot of it, even when I noticed coming up to graduate school, um, is doing research and people you know, usually research things that they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes it stops there where they do the research, they write the papers, they get the publications, they get tenure, and then that's it. Um, but for me, it's more than that, uh, mainly because of just being a black male um, and understanding what our people go through and have gone through in this country, that it just couldn't stop there, right? And so, yeah, I want to do the research, but I want my research to mean something where it actually impacts people's lives, people's lives that I care about, people's lives that I don't know, but in some way, shape, or form makes our people's lives a little bit better. Awesome. Now, I'm jumping ahead already. Ready. But uh-huh. since we, we've talked about act- activism, I'm going to go there. Then okay. we'll go back yeah. uh, to your role in academia. Do you feel pressure to bridle your activism or keep it within certain boundaries because you are an academic? Mm, I don't feel pressure. Um, and this is one of the reasons I've chosen academia as a career path, um, because it kind of gives me the liberty to do my research, but be vocal without mm-hmm. having to worry about any kind of ramifications or consequences career wise. Um, but I know even coming up, there were a lot of people who would try to mute me in essence, in a way, because they felt that if I would be too vocal about certain things, then it might hinder my job prospects, hinder networking opportunities, because, you know, people might not want to be around somebody who they feel is an activist or or problematic in some ways. Um, But, you know, I guess being raised with the kind of father I had, you know, just no fear, just always Mm -hmm. speak your peace and be vocal about whatever you're passionate about. So that's how I've always been raised and that's how I've continued to be. Um, But I do see that there you know, within the spaces of academia, there are a lot of people who are pretty quiet, especially those who are junior faculty trying mm-hmm. to get tenure. And once you get tenure, it's a different story. But up until that point where I'm at right now, still trying to get tenure, um, I don't I don't feel that necessarily. Mm-hmm. Shout out to your parents. Yeah, shout out to my sure. parents. Such Cor- great people. <laughs> Ministers. Yeah. Cornelius, yeah, Corne- and Francine, Cornelius and Francine. Cornelius and Francine. people. Absolutely. And them, them, you know those old names too. <laughs> you are not right. Cornelius. You're not right at all. But anyway... Um, so talking about that, but for me, I think being in academia and activism Mm -hmm. lends itself to a higher level of credibility, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's one thing to be what they call, you know, rabble rouser where you're out here just being quote irreverent and making inflammatory statements and challenging the system and speaking truth to power. And it's another thing to have the research Mm -hmm. and the credentials to be able to back that up. So I think while it may ruffle feathers and people may bristle when you're saying, no, I'm doing the research, I'm in the trenches, I'm in the stacks Mm -hmm. um, or these days on the internet and actually putting forth data Mm -hmm. and and theories and, and things to and concepts to support my arguments, how can you not respect that? Mm-hmm. How can you not? And and even, you know, before having tenure, to me, I'm, I'm thinking these are the kinds of professors that we need in institutions. Mm-hmm. The ones that I remember from college are those people mm-hmm. who didn't just say, read page 47 to 63 mm-hmm. for the next class. Those mm-hmm. who had an opinion and were able to speak and speak passionately and intelligently about the issues that, you know, of the day, things mm-hmm. that were going on out in the world. So, mm-hmm. um, and the day and age in which we live, I think we're moving to a space where you have no choice but to accept people 
more for who they are because so much of who we are is out there yeah. in the public and it's hard to keep those worlds separate. So I think we're, we're moving into a space where activism is becoming slowly but surely more accepted mm -hmm. in those spaces that are historically conservative. Mm -hmm. For real. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about your work. You are a professor at State University of New York, mm -hmm. New Paltz. SUNY New Paltz, yeah. And you're specifically in the sociology department? Mm -hmm. Sociology. And director of the criminology, criminology concentration. concentration. So what does that mean? Um, so yeah, so um, I got my PhD in sociology, but if you, those of you not familiar with sociology, it's a very broad, broad field. Mm -hmm. People specialize in a whole bunch of stuff from gender studies to religion to race. Um, so my specialty was mainly uh, in law and society with a focus in criminology. So a lot of my work centers around criminal justice, largely how it focus affects uh, people of color in various ways. And so um, I landed a tenure track position at SUNY New Paltz where they have multiple concentrations. They have the general track and they have the human services concentration where a lot of students go if they want to go into social work. Then they have a criminology concentration. Um, and so uh, I'm the director of that particular concentration. Um, and one of the things, the difference I like to tell my students too is that, you know, it's a criminology, not criminal justice. So mm -hmm. criminal justice, you would get a lot of the kind of practical knowledge, right? The know-how. A lot of times the students are learning in these classes how to be police officers or preparing to be going to law school. With criminology, it's more of a focus of how the criminal justice system impacts society in various ways. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times students will come in with a criminal justice focus, but I say, no, this is criminology. We're talking theory, we're talking application and how it affects, you know, multiple populations and just our society in general. Yeah. And when did you make that distinction personally and actually said, okay, you know what? Criminology is the area that I want to go into. Yeah. So, so my work, in both, well, really, it was mainly because of how I felt. Like I said earlier, it's about applic uh, applying what I do. Mm -hmm. um, and so criminal justice, in a lot of ways, it, it is ap it's applicable in some ways, but in essence, it's not really taken to other societal factors. So a lot of criminal justice programs, they'll look at, you know, the, the best ways to be most efficient when you're making an arrest or, um, you know, especially we're talking about safety in prisons. Um, but for me, I want to figure out ways to, like, reduce recidivism, right, or, uh, or make or uh, test implicit bias within law enforcement or particular criminal justice practitioners. Um, so it's more uh, applicable to the community than it is just in, you know, the people who work in these in these fields. Absolutely. So that's one of the reasons I chose criminology. And it's just, you know, what I like, enjoy teaching too, more than criminal justice kind of stuff. Plus, I'm not a police officer. I'm not a lawyer. Um, so just far as my knowledge base, it was just the right move. Mm -hmm. So were you like in high school saying, you know what, one day I'm going to get a PhD and I'm going to do <laughs> scholar activism and all that stuff? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> All I knew when I was in high school and, uh, you know, I just one thing I knew I wanted a job where I wore a suit. Mm -hmm. um, so primarily, especially being a first generation college student, you know, we, I didn't really kind of know what I want to do, but I know I wanted to make money and I wanted to wear a suit. So naturally I took, I was in a lot of business related stuff. Mm -hmm. I was like future business leaders of America. And I guess essentially what happened in high school, I pretty much took, and I was like in advanced accounting and all that kind of stuff. And I was pretty much took all the business classes I can take. And so my senior year, I'm like, all right, let me take some other things. And then I stumbled upon classes like conscious of man and social groups and law and psychology. And I'm like, well, this is real, real interesting. It's mm -hmm. way more interesting than um, crunching numbers in accounting. And um, so, and actually when I had declared my my major initially before I had got into Hampton, I was um I was a five year MBA. Wow. But my very first semester, I'm like, nah, I'm going to psychology. <laughs> I switched immediately taking those classes in my senior year um, because it just it just stood out to me more and it's something that I knew that I connected with more than just you know trying to be a businessman a big CEO executive all that right. kind of stuff uh -huh. okay so you make the change mm -hmm. and you go from I'm gonna do this business thing to no 
like, actually, I want to be on this path. Mm -hmm. Now you're at Hampton, mm -hmm. right? So I have the beauty of doing this interview through the lens of like someone who knows you and mm -hmm. grew up very similarly. Mm -hmm. So what was the experience for you like going from this Christian conservative home church every Sunday, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Bible study mm -hmm. to now you're at this HBCU where everything is your oyster. Mm -hmm. Like... I didn't even go to an HBCU, but when I got to college, I was like, what in the world? Like, it, it, you know, everything was, and I was in a city. So uh -huh. what was that like for you? That, that switch from being home and parents who are very involved, mm -hmm. didn't play no games, mm -hmm to having the freedom to explore both academically and socially. Yeah, and this is one of the things I got I to shout out my dad for, because um, I think he had, you know, he's a wise man. He had the foresight to see growing up, you know, definitely in the church, but also growing up in a suburban area where, you know, it was a lot of white kids in my high school. And one of the things he just always preached to me and my brothers is that we need to get away from home. Um, and so, you know, although my parents were definitely very involved, my dad was like, I want you to get as far away from here as possible so that you can discover yourself, right, mm -hmm. and become a man um, in the essence of that. And so, yeah, getting away to Hampton, you know, first and foremost, being in a school was full, nothing, 97% black folk. First time, actually my very first time ever having black teachers and professors. Mm -hmm. I've never had that before. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of the kids who went to Hampton also had similar backgrounds for me, you know, um, coming from parent, maybe two-parent homes, being in the church and all that kind of stuff. But then what I quickly realized is that there was a lot of black folk as well who were not like me um, mm -hmm. and I think that was one of my first times having that eye-opening experience where you're realizing you know non-monolithic in a lot of ways and and meeting people and and seeing people from all over the country really because there's not that many HBCUs so I was able to meet people from the west coast and, and the south and of course the east coast and all that kind of stuff um, so it was real fun just to be in an environment that was all about us right, right? Um, to go to the student union and hear hip-hop play and we had a DJ at 12 to 2 to go to parties and not have to worry about like, oh, are they going to play music we like there, mm -hmm. right? Um, and just also being able to just have dialogue and, and be in a safer space where you're not having to put on. I think that's one of the, the greatest things I think I had to feel because being in white spaces, you always have to feel like, oh, I got to be careful what I say or I got to kind of always be on edge. When you're in a place that's surrounded by people that are just like you um, and from similar backgrounds and not, it's just like a, a really uh, relaxing kind of comfortable environment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That I miss, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I do want to talk about that yeah. because you went from that safe space with people who look like you yeah. um, and, you know, feeling very comfortable to then pursuing your Ph.D. Mm -hmm at Purdue University mm -hmm. in Indiana. Yeah. So I did a little research mm -hmm. on the demographics at Purdue. Yeah. <laughs> and black students make up 3.6% mm -hmm. of the population at Purdue. Mm -hmm. What was that switch like oh, for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, it probably is what you would imagine it to be. Uh, one, being in Indiana, never being in the Midwest before, I didn't know how conservative it was out there. Mm -hmm. I just I just was unaware to, like, really, really... I know people, I think, coming from Jersey and New York area, we all always have this reputation or ideas of what it's like in the South, right? Um, but they go into that Midwest is a whole different ball game too. I mean, you've seen just as many Confederate flags out there as you probably no, would see in a Southern state. Uh, and so I was like, whoa, okay, what is this? Even just going to, from the airport to the school for my first time, it was just nothing but like cornfields after cornfields after cornfields. And I was like, where am I? But like you said, I mean, Purdue is a Big Ten school. So it was 40,000 students, 3%, like you said, of black students. But even less than that, there was only 254 black graduate students Wow! out of 40,000 at the time I was at Purdue. Um, so just, I mean, that's just a super small number. And so 
it's the complete opposite of Hampton. And so really trying to adjust was a big thing. But for me, um, I, I sought it out. I sought out uh, a lot of other black graduate students who were there, as many of the 250 as I could, because uh, we all had to, I believe, be part of this community together in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And I would say that one of the biggest things with Purdue is I feel like they do a pretty good job at recruiting students of color, but they did a terrible job at retaining them. And a lot of it has to do with their their lack of really adjusting the culture of Purdue itself, how it's not really a welcoming, conducive place for minorities. Um, and so it was a sad thing to watch. Many black students coming in, really excited to get their PhD and one or two years dropping out. Wow. Um, so, so, but for me, it was really connecting to, a, and, and the, 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 some funny thing is that a lot of, I guess because a lot of white schools don't know how to recruit, right, right, to, to a, a breadth of, of black students. So what they would do is with the first places they would go would, would be to HBCUs. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the graduate students there were from HBCUs, surprisingly. So we all had that same experience of making that transition from a place that was all of us to a place that was none of us now. And so that really helped us connect really quickly uh, at Purdue for sure. So what were the drivers for you to actually say, this is where I'm going? Um, one, again, again, the credit to my pops, because um, when I had to make a decision to go to Purdue and I went on a visit and I looked at, you know, they have a wall of like the students there and the professors there was not one black person in the department. Mm -hmm. I went back to my pops like, yo, this is crazy. I'm not, I'm not going back there. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm like, out. there's nobody there that's black. And he was like, well, that's why you need to go there, right? Um, to to create that space and open up doors for people behind you and to 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 do that. I didn't think of it that way before. I'm like, oh, oh, that makes sense, right? If I'm going to a spot, all that I learned at Hampton, all that I learned throughout my life kind of prepared me for that moment to go into a space where there wasn't anybody but me. Um, and so I took that challenge on. And that's one of the reasons I chose Purdue. And then, and of course, other other reasons like funding and stuff like mm -hmm. that. I was offered a pretty pretty good five-year fellowship where I didn't have to worry about funding for five years, which you can't really pass that up to. Uh, but that definitely was in my deciding factor. Like, I can't, I can't be at this place where I'm the only one. But eventually more came behind me. And then, you know, making, I, I took it as a challenge that while I was there to make, be very vocal about the need for diversity and the need for having more people of color, especially in the sociology program. I mm -hmm. mean, one of the main things that's race, class, and gender. You have nobody here that's, that's a different race. I mean, right. that's not even representative of what a sociology program should be. Um, so that was problematic in itself. But just the school itself, I made sure to make a lot of noise there um, to make sure that this is important and we can't, things, this, this kind of status quo can't continue to be. But did you experience racism there, either overt or subtle racism? So for me, I can say that I all my friends, everybody has tons of stories. And I personally felt that I didn't feel any kind of the explicit forms of racism, but a lot of my close friends out there did where people were driving by on the college campus, yelling the N-word out, um, not being allowed in the bars because of the way they were dressed. Um, their faculty members saying certain things to them, right? Especially women of color, they, I, they've had, they had like the most difficult time, um, even in my program, not even matriculating and making it to their PhD. Um, and I was the only black male in the program, but there were a lot of black women that were coming in and just were not finishing because of that disconnect and not really understanding how to adjust the, the faculty, not really understanding how to adjust. Um, but, but at Purdue, there was a lot because a lot of the kids there, and the, I think a lot of these Big Ten schools too, a lot of the white kids came from these super rural communities. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I only had 50, 70 kids in my entire high school. No, not one black person. And so a lot of they were getting was from what they see on TV, right? Um, and so they, what they weren't used to seeing, of course, it was natural for them to see the black athletes, 
it on, on campus, but seeing somebody who was getting a PhD and was black was super foreign to them. Not only getting a PhD, but teaching them, right? Because mm-hmm. I had to teach classes out there. Um, so then you would see a lot of reservations, especially in the student evaluations, like, oh, he's he's um too intimidating to talk to and stuff like that, you know? Like, that word. Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, man, you know, though that's that racially racially coded language that mm-hmm. they were saying. What they meant is that I was black and they were they feared me right, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and trying to overcome those things. Um, but yeah, the racism was was rampant at Purdue for sure. Um, and it, it, sometimes if you guys just take a chance to like Google Purdue University and racism, right? I think at the time I was there, they were the second in hate, hate crimes in, in the country as second. far as public universities, number wow. two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of hoopla and and, and, co- and controversy over that and, and marches and protests um, because it was a real issue out there compared to other universities. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. But you made it. I made it. <laughs> <laughs> you made it through. But you made it. I think that speaks to to a the way you were raised and the resilience that you have, and also something that we were talking about off mic before we started recording in that you actively work to connect with the black folks who were there Mm -hmm. on campus and finding that community, if you can, I think is so crucial to being able to to survive another day, for lack of a better term, when you're in those environments where you may not be experiencing the the hostile, overt racism, but people are using the coded language Mm -hmm. or looking looking at you with intrigue or a little bit perplexed, like, hey, how did you get here? Are you equipped to be here? And how are you teaching me, Mm -hmm. right? Um, so having that support behind the scenes where you can vent about it, because we all know like oh, yeah. you, can't, you can't just be flipping tables and, you know, the faculty meetings every time something goes down. Um, so but having a space where you can say this, this happened and knowing that people can relate to that, I think is important and, and something that I'm learning to encourage people under me to do, mm-hmm. like find people who can be an ally mm-hmm. that you can bounce That's ideas key. off of and um, have that that support and that mutual experience to be able to push through together mm-hmm. because trying to survive in a vacuum mm-hmm. it will make you want to leave oh yeah so for I, sure. I can't you know I can't do this mm-hmm. um, so I, I think all those factors together really contributed to you and it's a testament to who you are too being able to sustain you know for five years mm-hmm. So then you, you came back right after that to the East, East Coast mm-hmm. um, and now you're teaching. And I think folks who are not super familiar with the academia thing, you go to school, you're finally out mm-hmm. and the study part of it and the research part of it is over. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, those that that work for you continues. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the research work that you've been doing. Yeah, so like you said, a lot, of, a lot, and quickly I'll just talk about academia itself. A lot of people don't realize that, um, you know, when you get your PhD and you kind of go into a tenure track position, uh, you have to still get tenure. Mm-hmm. And so this is like the, a big growth that a lot of people have when they get their PhDs is the fact like, oh, I worked so hard to get this PhD and now I have to work very hard again to get tenure, continue to prove myself. So generally the tenure process takes six to seven years where you have to prove yourself. In essence, your job is not secure until you get tenure. Um, you still have to do a certain amount of research certain amount of teaching, certain amount of service in the department, in the community. And then after six or seven years, you get evaluated. And then the school says, okay, we'll give you tenure. Nice. You you know, you go from assistant professor to associate professor to full professor and you get a nice pay raise. But then once you get tenure, you have pretty much have really solid job security. Um, so for me right now, I'm in my third year. Uh, no, it's my fourth. This is my what year? My fourth year. Wow. Um, three and a half years. Yes, yeah, so I'm in the middle of my fourth year um, in my tenure process. And so I'm actually going for reappointment 
development or reevaluation. This year, every two years we do it. Um, so that so that process continues where I got I started my research while I was in Purdue and I continue it through tenure here and I have to expand it. I have to write papers, I have to publish um, and all that stuff as I'm matriculating through this tenure process. It's not a game. No. <laughs> it is not. not a game. So let's talk about one of your papers mm-hmm. um, that I have here. Legitimation in Action, an Examination of Community Courts and Procedural Justice. Uh-huh. Which is, a, that's a mouthful in and of itself. Uh-huh. But tell us a little bit about what this publication is about. Yeah, um, you know, and I'll talk a little bit about the publication because I don't want to get too into it, but I mm-hmm. kind of want to give people, I guess, an idea of as far as what I do and, and, and my perception as far as my research. And I think um, when I was at Purdue studying, starting to look and figure out what I want to research and criminal justice research, what I realized is that a lot of the things that are discussed when we talk about like criminal justice reform, because um, up until that point, we know about race in the criminal justice system. We know mm-hmm. about the inequalities. We know about police brutality. We know about dispar- disparities in sentencing and all that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to see if that conversation continued to the reform part, if people were still looking at race to see are there inequalities with these solutions that are supposed to help fix the criminal justice system. And largely what I found was no, right? People weren't really looking at race anymore. What would happen is that we would say, oh, we have the solution and then everything is fixed. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the racial outcomes, black folks and people of color were not succeeding in these programs as much as their white counterparts were. And I thought that was problematic. So that's largely a lot of what my research focus stems on is looking at criminal justice reform and these practices and essentially trying to hold them accountable to make sure that they're not continuously kind of perpetuating the inequalities that we already see in the criminal justice system when it comes to race. Um, and so particularly one of the criminal justice reforms that I've been looking at are, are called problem solving courts or specialized courts. And for those of your listeners who are not familiar with those, these courts are pretty much courts that are used to kind of reduce uh, mass incarceration mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because of what happened with mandatory minimums and all this kind of stuff. The courts essentially just continuously send people to prison. They become overpopulated and there are a lot of other issues. And so these courts, what they do is that they are an alternative to traditional sentencing. So you have a lot of different kind of courts like drug courts, community courts, domestic violence courts, family courts, housing courts. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, so I want to take a closer look at some of these courts to see how race plays out in these courts and just essentially how they function. Um, so the main focus for my dissertation research, we're looking at community courts um, in Newark and Red Hook, Brooklyn and Midtown Manhattan were the three courts I focused on. And really comparing the courts, Midtown was actually the first community court ever, then followed by Red Hook. And then Newark is one of the more recent courts. So I've been around for about seven or so years. Um, So I spent about a month at each court, observing each court, looking at the judges, how to interact, looking at the staff, interviewing them, and really trying to pay particular attention to how race uh, plays out in these these courts. Um, And so this particular paper, the further what you mentioned, is not looking at race per se, but looking at procedural justice, which is kind of a new way uh, the criminal justice system is trying to approach um, the court system, especially from the bench, mm-hmm. where they're trying to have a softer approach, if you will, um, and consider a lot of things, not just looking at somebody's rap sheet, right? Saying, oh, you've had four prior, so you get this automatic sentence where they're saying, well, do you have children? Do you have a job? Well, instead of giving you jail as ultimatum, we'll give you these other opportunities. And then if you don't succeed with these other opportunities, then you'll go to jail first. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of using as jail or incarceration as the last method before they're getting to, you know, other things. So essentially there's been a lot of praise within these courts as far as, you know, and I I do support these courts as well, um, as far as how they operate and what they do in reducing recidivism. But on the flip side, when looking at race, they're not really looking at race, right? And Mm -hmm. and a lot of the outcomes have shown that uh, people of color have been succeeding far less, even in these great criminal justice reform and practices. So I know we we could probably talk for seven episodes about (laughs) this, but in short, at Mm -hmm. a high level, how do we turn that around Mm. where, um, 
people are acknowledging how race plays a factor, mm-hmm. but also we're moving into a place where the impact that maybe had positively on, you know, people who've touched the, the criminal justice system who are white, how that positive impact is the same for people of color as well. How do we start to move in that direction? Yeah, I think first and foremost is just uh, recognition and raising awareness. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, like I said, when we get to these reform practices, people just stop there. It's almost kind of like the Obama effect, right? Like, oh, we got a black president, right. all problems are solved. And that's not the case. It's like, okay, we have these issues. Now we need to continuously hold them accountable and be critical. And sometimes I think, especially maybe sometimes us as people, we're like we fight so long and then we get a success. So we make this progress and then we're like, ah, okay, you know, let's, we made it. So let's mm-hmm. not push it too much. But I think that's a part of, of us too, is to make sure that we still hold these programs or whatever be accountable to make sure that they are still being effective for the population that we seek it to be. And so that's why the first step is raising awareness. And then the second step is being in a lot of these programs and um, with a lot of these things, it's just a lack of diversity mm-hmm. as far as the decision makers. Um, and sometimes it's not by the fault of people of of people who are in these positions. It's sometimes just about who's available. And I think a lot of times, like I said earlier, even within our community, even me being a professor, I noticed that a lot of us black students go into, you know, they want to go into be oh, maybe a lawyer. They mm-hmm. want to be a uh, um, you know, into business or something along those lines, you know, that's what we're kind of taught, especially being first generation. But I think we need to kind of expand that conversation for our community, for those who are seeking higher education to think about other fields. Right. Um, because most of the time, especially with the staff, the social workers, they were largely white women, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just doing with availability where most of the staff or most of the defendants were men of color, right? 87, 90%. But the staff that's working with them on a complete opposite suburban white girls trying to connect with these people who are coming from the inner city, um, and broken homes and all these other kind of things. And that it makes it very hard to just have a therapeutic relationship. Right. Um, so I think a part of it is on us to, to expand our conversations as far as what we are encouraging our young minds to go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think the more exposure there is mm-hmm. um, and the more we start having honest conversations about the economics mm-hmm. of these various fields yeah. as well will help. Because I think, especially you know when we're talking about first generation, mm-hmm. you know we're like, we want to get to this money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We want to get much. to this money. <laughs> and it's not always just a floss. Mm-hmm. It, it's about you know people want to build generational wealth they think mm-hmm. that that's the only way to do that yeah. is to be, you know, and I'm speaking even as a lawyer, but to be a lawyer or a doctor or in, in business. And the reality of it is you can build a beautiful life mm-hmm. and um, create generational wealth and do all those things in a lot of other areas. Mm-hmm. And there are ways, and I'm, I'm a personal, you know, fan of multiple streams of income. Mm-hmm. So there are ways to take who you are as a person, person and cultivate your talents mm-hmm. and monetize that no matter what field you're in, no matter where your main paycheck comes from. So I think um, and it's something I've been exploring too. Like, I think the, that we need to do a, a better job um, or continue to expand how we expose younger people mm-hmm. to these opportunities so they're clear that there is, is more to it mm-hmm. um, than just like these one or two or three areas, medicine, law, business. Oh yeah, I completely agree. Um, you know, sometimes professors get a, a rap of, you know, not making the most money, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, which is, which is true in some regards. Uh, but what, like you said, like even my wife and I now, we're, we're starting to explore um, investing in real estate and mm-hmm. stuff like that, right? Getting multiple streams. I think even in this day and age with technology and stuff, there's so many oppor- so much more opportunities for us to to engage economically and find other ways to make money. And, and so it's possible, right? And I think if you think it from the traditional mindset of, oh, I have to have my one job and this is all I can have in 
the way on the main way to make money, mm-hmm. then you know you'll you kind of be trapped and be missing on a lot of other opportunities too. Yeah, and I mean, just talking about it in the context of our economy mm-hmm. at this point, we are not our parents' generation. Yeah. Where you you know, if I get this job, I'm you know work here for even if you go into business or what have you for thirty years and retire mm-hmm. yes, and get my pension. That's anymore. it. That, that's not where we. <laughs> that's not where we live anymore. Mm-hmm. So even outside of just career choice, um, I think it's wise to have multiple streams of income because we don't know when the tides are going to turn. Yeah. And it's probably coming, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> considering our, our current regime. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's just important from from that perspective as well. But mm-hmm. taking it back to um, these programs and the idea of criminal justice reform, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the article that came out a couple of weeks ago um, and the, the headline mm-hmm. that said how Jared Kushner, Kim Kardashian West and Congress drove the criminal justice overall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I first saw that, first and foremost, I found it insulting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because we know that there are people who are activists or in academia and in all these other areas who have been advocating for and examining this area long before, um, you know, Kim mm-hmm. or or Jared Kushner, or this current administration got involved. But this the narrative has been that somehow they, they tipped the scales. But, mm-hmm. you know, beyond that, the article basically boiled it down to now those who are incarcerated may be eligible for reduced sentences mm-hmm. due to this reform and you know methinks is probably not that simple right? mm-hmm. oh, so in short what does it really mean what does what does this criminal justice overhaul really mean yeah so it means a lot of things one mm-hmm. you know the whole Kim Kardashian cushion thing. I mean, it's just silly. Mm-hmm. I think I think what they can get credit for is their celebrity and maybe being the only ones who can talk to Trump in that celebrity lingo, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because he's not listening to researchers and policymakers and stuff like that. That's far in the distance to him. But you know, someone like Kim comes, um, then that's that gets his attention, right? And and whatever they say, whatever it is, I wouldn't consider them activists or whatever. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't even consider what they're doing. I think they just were able to get Donald's air more than other folks have been able to. Um, and they should not get any credit for, for the reform and, and and a lot of the research that has been going on for decades as far as how this criminal justice system needs to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, what they were talking about is these big reform, criminal justice reform, where all the policymakers and politicians have been praising is the, the First Step Act. Um, and what's interesting about the First Step Act is that in 20, well, in 2015, there was a, a push to make this reform in the Obama administration and it didn't happen, right? Um, and, it was, and that act largely focused on sentencing reform. It was shot down. Um, and so when this act came around um, and it was uh, it was a Democratic senator, I believe, and a Republican who worked on this collectively. So this is why it's also been titled like the bipartisan, uh, one of the first bipartisan acts that Trump is, has passed. Um, and, and I can get into that in a little bit too. But anyway, the main thing about the act was that largely in the beginning when it was first introduced in the spring was the fact that it didn't have any kind of sentencing reform, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because Trump's administration was like, listen, we are not going to touch that. What we will do is incentivize in, inmates by putting programs and facilities um, that used to be there, like education programs, programs that teach them how to learn uh, technical labors and stuff like that. Um, and in that way, they get they do these programs and then they get less time off their sentence 
benefits and they can get released early. And when they go out into the world, they can get these jobs. So the main thing is like, okay, we'll get these programs, then it'll reduce recidivism. And that's problematic in itself because you can teach people as much as they want. But say if you're a black male with a criminal record, Where I can you have all the skills. That, right? <laughs> all the skills I want doesn't mean like, oh, we're just going to hire you now, a black felon, right? Just <laughs> is not going to happen. Um, it, it is, and, and there's been studies like someone, Deva Pager, who recently passed a couple months ago, who has this book called Marked, where she studied that. And she took uh, two, like a group of black males and white males. She sent them out into the workforce and she said, hey, all right. And she gave each of them the same resumes and and one of each of the groups had a criminal record. The person who got the most callbacks was the white male with no criminal record. The person who got the second most callbacks was the white male with a criminal record. The person who got the third most callbacks was the black male with no criminal record. And then the person who barely got any callbacks was the black male with a criminal record. And so that even shows you that even having a black, being a black male with no criminal record and having still education, below. you're still not getting as many job opportunities as a white male with a criminal record, right? Um, and so anyway, when the, when it was first introduced, a lot of the major Democrats, people like Cory Booker, people like Kamala Harris were like, they wrote this long letter saying we won't support this, right? Even the, um, the ACLU didn't support it too, for a lot of reasons, um, but mainly the reasons dealing with race. They felt like it was going to perpetuate racial inequalities due to the way they're going to select people to be in these programs with algorithms and I'll talk about that in a second um, and then another part was that they didn't have the sentencing component mm -hmm. that the original bill had in 2015 so with this bill that eventually passed why I pay particular attention to it is that they did put the sentencing component into it right where some people who have mandatory who had who had certain drug offenses and mandatory minimum may be eligible for release and it gives judges a little bit more flexibility as far as their sentencing now instead of just going straight to mandatory minimums because that was mm -hmm. one of the big gripe of judges like oh we, our hands are tied the law says we have to give this when this offense has happened, there's charges on there, and that's what they had to do. And not to mention the stacking, especially with crimes with a firearm. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing, but then you have all these additional charges. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And especially the firearm ones, too. Um, so, yes, there was a lot of that. And so why I pay particular attention to it, too, is because, and this is why I think even as a people, why I say we have to continue to critique, critique because people like Cory Booker, people like Kamala Harris, even um, Congressman John Lewis, who was on this letter, they one of the big things that they said that they felt this bill was going to continue to perpetuate racial inequalities due to the algorithms. Now, the, the big adjustment to the bill that was passed, they did put the sentencing reform in there. And so they all agreed and they passed it. And then I see people like Kamala Harris, I see people like Cory Booker on their Instagrams praise the bill, right? Mm -hmm. But the algorithm aspect is still in there where it can still perpetuate these racial inequalities that was not taken out of the bill and so there are a lot of people in computer science uh, there's this woman by the name of jovial joy on on twitter um she's a black woman she does computer science and her whole research focuses on algorithmic bias because wow. within uh technology nowadays we're not really focusing on how technology because of people who like i said earlier create these programs and make the decisions are all white and so there are things like facial recognition programs where they don't recognize black faces right or they're trying to use facial recognition programs for police like when they're looking at cameras and video cameras to see, look at suspects and identify people. And there's going to clearly be a racial bias with that. But anyway, with the algorithmic bias, what's going to happen is that they'll be selecting more white people into these programs than black people because they're using computers to do that, right? Um, and so that was not addressed. Even though that was a major gripe within people like Cory Booker, et cetera, in this letter, it was still passed. They praised the bill as it being great. But now what I fear is that 10 years from now, we're going to see like, oh, well, the racial disparity is still there. Like 80% of the people who are getting these programs are white. Well, you knew that from jump. Mm -hmm. Right. But that wasn't a priority. That should have been more of a priority in my eyes than the sentencing reform, because whoever gets access to the programs, opportunities now, we're going to see that continues to perpetuate, um, which is problematic in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, it, 
these are the things we have to watch for, right? They're happening now. If we just look at the Instagram pages and look at the social media, like, oh, this is a good thing, which it is. Um, and another big thing, kind of what you talked about too, is is it all that it makes it seem? Well, no, not really. The main point is that the First Step Act only um, works in federal prisons, mm-hmm. right? Um, so we know there's a big problem as far as how many people be incarcerated in this, in this country, but federal prisons, to give you a picture, d- d- most people are housed in state prisons. 87% of people are in prison or in state prisons. That means only 13% of people in the, who are in prisons are in federal prisons, right? So that means this, this bill only is applicable to those in federal prisons, which is only 13% of the prison population. So even if it was wildly successful, it would only so be a very small, a very small percentage of people who would be affected as is. So again, it is a good step in the right direction, but it is definitely not the final step. We need a lot more for sure. So you as someone who is entrenched in this world and does the research, you can see through the smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. But for those who, you know, the general population who Mm -hmm. just reading the headline and seeing the one soundbite from CNN that says now those who are incarcerated may be eligible for reduced sentences are not going to realize any of this. So how do we educate the general? Public. Yeah, that's a tough question, right? Um, and this is part of what I'm attempting to do within my career is try to be able to figure out ways to bridge that gap um, between you know, the the technical academic jargon and just the general population, right? And I think there's a big disconnect there because in academic, largely because of the way academia is set up, um, that they're not really reaching out to the public to, to, to have these kind of conversations in layman's terms, right? Like, this is what it is and this is how it can impact us. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to figure out, right, right now is how can we begin to, or how can people who are in the general public figure, because I can be like, okay, go research and look at academic journals, right? But nobody's going to do that, especially no. because, one, they're born uh, and they too is like, where do I search? You got to have resources. You got to have access. Nobody's going to pay $30 for, for a 20 page journal article. Um, so I think it's up to some of us who are in these spaces to make it available for those or, or figure out or build these bridges for those who are not in these spaces to be like to educate. That's I think what it boils down to um, education in a lot of ways and access to that. Right. So, you know, engagement and access, which is a great segue because mm-hmm. outside of the work you do as a professor, you are working to engage and give people access through a couple different ways. Let's start um, with your podcast, mm-hmm. BHD. Tell us yeah. a little bit about Black and Highly Dangerous. Um, Black and Highly Dangerous, yeah. So it, it's funny because just how just how our you know worlds um, collide mm-hmm. in different ways, right? Because we started our podcast around the same time. Yeah. Uh, mine, mine year, I think February, first week of February would be a year for me. Um, so it was just kind of cool watching both of us. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I didn't even know y'all were doing it. And then when I see saw Marcus uh, post and stuff, I'm like, oh, okay, this is dope. Um, so yeah, Black and Highly Dangerous um, is the acronym because I have, you know, PhD and my co-host, she's getting her PhD too, but it's BHD, mm-hmm. right? To play off of that. Um, and I think for me, the, 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 the reasoning behind the name is a lot of times when we talk about, you know, when they talk about black folks and, and how we're dangerous is those kind of stereotypical images of, you know, the thug, somebody with a gun, somebody with a felon, right? It's always been in our history, kind of those savagery images of, of black folks and black men in particular. But to me, I feel like always systemically, when you look at laws, you look at policy, what the oppressors or white folks have most feared was black folks getting education, mm-hmm. getting knowledge, right? Actually, we're getting awareness of what is going on. And so that's why I feel like, you know, this 
than black and highly dangerous is being that uh, we're here to educate and, and be that gap so we can raise that awareness because that's what they fear, right? When they told slaves they couldn't read, right? Or they had segregated schools. It's always about education where they were just very fearful of what can happen when black folks get their hand on a book or some knowledge. Um, so that's what we, so that's one of the main purposes of this is to be that gap. Um, and we have various guests on that come from, you know, academia, but from also a lot of professional settings to try to answer questions or just have dialogue about things people may care about, right? Mm-hmm. Like what does it mean? One of our most famous episodes or popular episodes was what does it mean to sound black, mm-hmm. right? Because we all know that as a black person, we have to code switch and we're certain right. spaces, we have to talk a certain way. So we had a sociolinguist, right? Um, come and talk to her researchers talking about the uh, how black people have to speak differently in these particular settings and what that means. And looking at people like Obama, who was able to code switch and, you know, be culturally competent and speak well and, and to, to the, to, with white folks, but also be able to turn it on and, and be a brother when he had to be as well. And so just having these kind of conversations where people can come to the podcast and learn about something that, you know, they may have interest about, maybe never thought of before. Um, even like conversation we've had, lawyers come on and talk about natural hair, right? Mm-hmm. And, and even the, the, the legalese of that and what's going on as far as like discrimination acts and, and things along those lines when it comes to natural hair, um, which was important too and eye-opening for me because, you know, being being a male, I didn't have to really deal with those right. kind of things. But I know a lot of black women who have natural hair and who are going to these corporate spaces are trying to navigate, like, what do I do or how can I approach this if, you know, my employer says, oh, we don't like your hair a certain style or whatever, you mm-hmm. know? So, so a lot of things like that, we're just trying to bridge that gap. Yeah, and I feel like with the advent of technology bridging the gap, it's becoming a lot easier mm-hmm. because, and I, I don't think it's because people, you know, always don't want to know. Like you said, there are barriers to yeah. access to information in a lot of ways. Also, our attention spans are like our attention is so divided yeah. because of the amount of information um, that is coming at us all the time now. And it's, it's funny because you know when you you've gotten a PhD, I've been to law school, the amount of reading that you know we had to do to, yeah. to get here, but still sometimes I'll start reading an article online and I get to like the third paragraph. And I'm like, I just can't, like, I'm I'm done. So I I just think it's information overload. And what I really love about the podcast medium is that, A, we control it, Mm -hmm. right? You control when you put the content out there, you have complete creative freedom. But also for me, you know, as a black podcast host, and I can, you know, I'm sure I can say the same for you, is the ability to just be who you are. Yes, amen. And bring the the levity, bring your opinions, and nobody can censor that or filter it. And being able to do that, I think... Especially for a podcast like BHD, it allows you to educate your listeners, but make it palatable. Mm-hmm. Present it in a way where they do they do feel like they're learning without feeling like it's so mired in academic lingo mm-hmm. that they can't really understand it. Yeah. And that's the, the beauty of technology and you know it the is. digital age. It is. It's such a beautiful thing. And I, like you said, I think again, being in academia for me sitting in these spaces that's just one of the biggest gripes I have is that just like why are we not reading like all this this wealth of information and knowledge Mm -hmm. and just kind of keep it in these bubbles right and I mean, only people who are privileged to are maybe college students who are already a privileged group who are getting access to this kind of stuff. But then it's like most people are not in college. Mm-hmm. Right. And even when we talk about people who study research race, it's like we're researching all these things. But um, the people who we're researching or the subjects of this research have no knowledge of what's being found or how this is impacting their lives. We're making these decisions even without their input or input or their voices. Right. Which is problematic, too. And so I just couldn't sit in, you know, in my in my office and just do this research and punch out these numbers or these papers and, and not have 
any kind of connection to to the community because that to me that's just, just messed up and, and a large disservice. And I think it can be problematic in a lot of ways. For sure. And mm-hmm. you're connecting to the community in multiple ways mm-hmm. in that you do have the podcast, but you do volunteer work mm-hmm. as well with formerly incarcerated young men. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, so I, I work, I've been volunteering for about three years now with um, Newark's Community Court, uh, Community Solutions. And, and one of the things when I did, my, did the research there, I was like, wow, this is like, this is awesome. And I was like, after I finished my PhD, I came back and I said, I want to be involved, right? Because there's no way I could just sit here and see you guys, all these, you know, black men in and out the system and and me not be involved. And I think personally for me too, was the fact that even in academic spaces, right? At tons, of, a lot of my peers, they do a lot of research and they say, you know, one of the biggest issues is that there's no good role models in these spaces, right? In, in, in inner cities or these impoverished communities. And even, and even the guys I talked to, they'll say the same thing. Like, you know, nobody ever comes back, they leave, right? So one of the big things, I want to be visible, right? Mm-hmm. Whether I'm not trying to, ch- I'm not trying to preach to you. I'm not trying to do all these things to change your lives. My main goal is just to be visible and accessible to like, hey, you know that, hey, there is a professor who is here um, to talk to you, whatever it is. You want to go to college, you want to talk about things. I'm just here for you um, because they never had that. Mm-hmm. And so that's just my first and foremost goal. But largely the group, what I do is it started with Judge Pratt, who used to be the judge of the court program. Um, she's really awesome. You guys should, should Google her. She's this TED Talk too, uh, who talks, she talks about procedural justice in her TED Talk. Um, but she had, there was a lot of groups going on, but most of the groups were for the, the the women participants in the program. They didn't have any groups for the young males. So she wanted to actually start this group for young men of color who've been in out the system college age because what she would do was assign an article. Uh, the article is called Forcing Black Men Out of Society, which is an op-ed from in the New York Times. And then she would have them like write essays and then they would come and like read the essay aloud in court to talk about, you know, what they got from it. But she wanted them to have a conversation about what was in this essay. And largely is talking about things about like how the criminal justice system, um, the economy, all this kind of stuff affects black men and essentially forcing them out of society in a lot of ways. So all this group is, we they read the article and then we come in. Um, every two weeks is a different group of guys and we just have a conversation about it. And sometimes it spins into different things, which is fine. Uh, but my main goal is to really just show that um, as a sociologist that what's happening in their lives is not like an isolated event, mm-hmm. right? It's more systemic and institutionalized and that you do have the power to make some changes that can go a long way. And uh, most of the time, largely that's what they get out of it too. Um, and the funny thing is a lot of times, you know, I, cause you know, I don't, even though initially I said I like to wear suits and stuff when mm-hmm. I go into these, I just dress casually. And most of the time it's similar style of dresses, those guys there. Mm-hmm. So I'll sit in the, I'll sit in the group with them. A lot of times they'll think I'm one of them, right? right. They don't even know I'm um, the guy who's leading it. Uh, but I like that because it allows me to connect with them easier mm-hmm. right? and to show that, Hey, like, yeah, I'm in this, I'm a professor, but I'm, I listen to the same music you guys do. I, mm-hmm. I watch the same shows you guys do. I speak the same way. I'm from this, I'm from your community. I'm from, we're a family, right? Um, so that, that goes a long way, but that's just one of the ways that I, I stay connected to the community. That's awesome. As much as I can, yeah. And, and I know, you know, one of the issues with people, I think, sometimes have this romanticized view mm-hmm. of wanting to do this work of like helping to rehabilitate and inform. Yeah. Um, and then they get into it and their eyes are open mm-hmm. to the fact that even though these guys are showing up and they want change, they've had essentially a traumatic experience oh, yeah. that affects who they are, they are, their ability to trust. Mm-hmm. Some of them have anger issues. There's all these things. Um, and I've seen it happen. People burn out. They're like, I can't. Like, this is a difficult um, segment of the population to work with. Mm-hmm. How have you been able to stick with it this long? Um, you know, I just, I just, I, I, I don't know. I think it just boils down to I just love my people mm-hmm. so much that I have to, I just, this is what I, I'd rather do this than teach, to be honest, mm-hmm. right? If to, to be in a college classroom, I might rather come speak to these guys every day if I had the ability and the capacity to do, um, because I just feel like 
this is just what's needed, right? And I also feel most comfortable in these settings too. Uh, but I also go into the time, I go into these situations with with the mind frame, I'm not trying to change your life, mm-hmm. right? I think that's when it becomes difficult is when you come in and you have this kind of savior mentality that like, oh, I'm here, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna fix everything for you, I'm gonna save and make everything all right and help you explain. Like I always tell the guys like, this is your life, this is your community, you are the experts, right? And I'm an outsider coming in just to help you in whatever way I can, but I'm not here to tell you what you should do, what you couldn't do. And a lot of times guys, guys just say straight up like, yeah, I, I learned a lot here, but you know, they literally tell them, still, I still gotta go out, I still gotta sell this, mm-hmm. you know? I'm saying I still got to do what I got to do to support my family. I'm not pointing my finger and saying that's a bad thing because I'm sure if I was in that same situation, I'd be doing the same thing. Um, and so it's just, just the, I think for me, it just comes out of place of love. I think one of my famous favorite quotes of, of, of Cornell West is, you know, um, he said, in order to save the people, you have to serve the people, mm-hmm. right? In order to lead the people, you have to love the people. Um, and I think it just basically goes down to some of those biblical principles, right? Of just serve of service and just, and just coming out of place of love and compassion. Um, that really just motivates me. Yeah, and and having navigated that space, not to the extent that you have, but mm-hmm. at an, an, at a portion of my life, mm-hmm. at the root of a lot of it is, you know, that Maya Angelou quote of people, you know, remember how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. Like, and people want to be seen, and yeah. they want to know that they have support in 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 some way, and that that transcends criminal background, mm-hmm. you know, career educational level. So I, I think part of what is probably a win in, in your situation is the fact that you've been consistent. Yeah. Like you consistently show up and showing up without judgment mm-hmm. and this just there to literally be a support and, and to help. They have to feel that. Yeah. They have to know that it's genuine and, it, and it's real. I think so. And, and especially when the God complex is removed from it because people love that whole like paternalistic yeah. and will come in and guide you to a better life and it's just not the it move. It just doesn't work. <laughs> It does not work. It doesn't work. I mean, think of somebody trying to come into your home, right? You got, you know, maybe some plumbing fix or some issues or maybe even like marital issues and somebody trying to come in and be like, this is what you have to do mm-hmm. to, to fix it. You, you're not going to be receptive to that. Um, and so it's like we're going to these spaces and then we're trying to tell people what they have to do. And it's it's natural, natural reaction to, to be, um, you know, not receptive to that kind of stuff. And I want to go back to one thing you said too, which is something I've, I've, I think gets kind of missed. I think we're having more conversations generally about this, but a key word that you said is trauma. Mm-hmm. And that's just such a big thing. I don't. I think we don't take that seriously enough, especially within. I mean, everybody in these particular communities for sure, but just in a black community, trauma is such a a big reason as far as why certain behaviors are happening or certain situations are happening. When you know, we take for lightly guys. I mean, the guys that come in and be like, "Yo, you know, my best friend died here. You know, I lost a brother to this right traumatic experiences, right?" And they're sitting here and they're trying to be cool about it, um, which you know you can probably understand why. But I think we have to take that into consideration. Why? Well, if my brother just died to gun violence, right? and I'm still living on this block, well, I got to have a gun so that my other brother, my other sibling, my mom doesn't die or I don't die, right? Um, but we talk about gun violence, all this stuff and how it's destroying the communities. But we're not looking at why these guys feel like they need to have these weapons or why they need to feel like they're selling these drugs. And a lot of it stems from trauma. You know, mm-hmm. I've had guys sitting in group, literally, you know, passing out as we're having conversations. And he said, oh, my bad, man, I'm on these meds because I got shot two days ago, right? Sitting in this group with me. Um, and I'm like, yo, that's crazy, right. right? I mean, that's traumatic for me just sitting here like, why are you even here, bro? go home, get some sleep um, because it's core mandate. They have to be there at the same time.
same time, but I think I think we have to begin having more conversations just about trauma and how that just just does a lot to our community and a lot of the behaviors we see. Yeah, yeah, and the various forms of trauma mm-hmm. because you know it always I smirk when people talk about the effects of war. Mm-hmm. You know about parts of the, of the world that are not here, and mm-hmm. you know you know just think about these war torn countries and how they affect the children there and what they see. Not realizing that we got war torn situations right here. Mm-hmm. Like it's the same. The, the, the emotional and psychological effects are the same. Yeah. Um, so, but we don't we don't see it that way. And I think that speaks too to to oftentimes how, especially black people, we have a culture of just moving on to the next. Because we have we have a choice. We, we didn't have a choice but to get up, mm-hmm. put your clothes on, start the day all over again, no matter what happened yeah, yesterday. Yeah, resilience, so, yeah. You know, we have this resilience and t- emotional and, and mental toughness where we we forge ahead and we run on and see what the end's going to be, mm-hmm. no matter what happened. Yeah. Um, so it's coming from two sides because we do have an ability to do that. A lot of the times I think people don't view our humanity um, and they think, you know, they see the strength, the superhuman strength. And I think that translates too to our emotional well-being. Yeah. And people not taking a moment to say, well, how has this affected you? What mm-hmm. you witnessed as a child, as an adult, and what you have, what you experienced, what you experienced being caged in the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. No matter what you did, you know, to possibly deserve to, to, to be there. And I, the key word there for me is possibly because everybody in prison does not deserve to be there. Let's, yeah. let's be real. Um, but how has that affected you and the choices that you, that you make? And mm-hmm. I think there needs to be more conversation and sensitivity around that for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, um, um, shift, shifting gears, you know, people may hear this and be like, oh, you know, Terrell had the two parent home, grew up in the mm. church, went to Hampton, went yeah. to, you know, Purdue, is doing all these amazing things. It's easy to have peace and positivity mm-hmm. in that way. But yeah. can you tell us about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day? Yeah, um, for sure. You know, you're right. I, and that's something I always talk about, Even you know, myself and other, you always recognize your privilege. And that's first and foremost, right? And, and I'm very fortunate to come from two parent homes, very fortunate to have a college education, very fortunate to have a solid career and a job and, and a wife that's, you know, equally or even more so would be, you know, not just my equal, but better, better than me in a lot of ways. Um, so you're right to mention that privilege. Um, for me, I think being extraordinary on an ordinary day, kind of, there was a time, and I'm thinking about when I was at Purdue, and this, this stems to kind of like a lot of the work I do and, and the passion I have. And one of the reasons I felt like I need to continue to do and be a voice was that there was um, this guy at Purdue, a young guy, undergraduate student. He was like 19 years old. And again, like we, you said earlier, the way Purdue was set up, a lot of white folks out there, right? And this kid was from the city and he pretty much looked like Wiz Khalifa tall, had dreads, had tattoos, was skateboarding all the time and stuck out all, you know, stood out pretty, you know, you can you can see him anywhere on campus. Um, but he was going through a lot where the school was really trying to kick him out for a lot of minor things, right? Doing what normal college kids kids do. But because of how he looked and how he, he you know, represented himself, was a good college student, but just due to the racism, I'm just boil, boiling down to what it was, they really were trying to kick him out. And, um, you know, I was giving a talk on a particular panel and he came up to me after the panel and just pretty much told me what was going on. Like, like bro, you know, I need your help. And I was like, all right. So I I reviewed his case and, um, and, you know, looked at his story and saw what was happening. And so I, I worked with him, right, for pretty much over a year um, to say, uh, you know, this is 
pretty much at the end of the day, I went, I went up to bat for him when mm-hmm. no one else would, right? Um, mainly because I connected to him, I connected to his story. I viewed him as like, yo, this could have been one of my brothers, mm-hmm. right? Up in this situation. And he felt he had nowhere to go. First generation, come from a single parent household um, and had no idea of how to, to navigate this, this academic setting. And so, you know, I took him under my wing and I worked with him through multiple situations, right? Uh, because it was multiple attacks they were trying to get him with. But I can, one of the, why I say this story, because one of the biggest things that stood out to me is the fact that one time we were, um, we went to pretty much the Indianapolis downtown to pretty much talk to politicians. That's how big it got because wow. we had to get a lot of support to help this young kid, this one kid with this particular case because I was refusing to have them kick him out of school uh, for these minor infractions. And so we went up there and on the way back, you know, I was just talking to him and I was just, I just told him, said, man, listen, I, you're 19 years old and me being, I can't imagine myself going through what you're going through at 19 years old, right? And just know that, you know, I'm not here to preach you. I'm not here to say, I'm just here to, to help you, but I'm trying my, I understand that what you're going through is tough, right? And this is a big, tough kid, you know, pretty much from the hood. And, and he began to cry in the back seat as we're driving back. That kind of caught me off guard, right? Because, you know, you know, you know, with men, we don't do that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But I think what happened is that, you know, at that moment, I realized like, not that I didn't know this, but I'm like, when you're helping somebody and you got to have this compassion at the end of the day, we're all human, right? And you're still going to have emotions. You're still going to be affected in these particular ways um, when these things are going on. And I really made, made, made Sam like, okay, from that situation on, and long story short, you know, he wound up graduating last year and all that kind of stuff. So he got out, which, you know, I'm really happy about. He did all the work himself. But what I, I'll say, all I like to say, just to say that at the end of the day, that, you know, like we're all human. We have to be compassionate. We have to just be there for each other out of love, right? And to be extraordinary on an ordinary, ordinary day for me was just really realizing that um, love is, is the center of all things that kind of make us better, mm-hmm. right? And no matter what you want to do in life, whether it's personal issues, whether it's community issues, I think it just has to start and end with love. And I think, you know, you'll see the outcomes you want to see at the end of the day, but that's where it kind of begins and ends for me. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And we're going to let you get out of here shortly. But yeah, sure. since you talked about love and yeah. you mentioned your wife, let's uh-huh. talk about romantic love a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, you, you mentioned your wife. So you said she's your equal, might even be better than Yo, you. Yo, she is. You know, there's this argument with black men mm-hmm. that they're either A, noncommittal when it comes to black women. Yeah. Or they do not want their equal. Right. And you are an example in opposition to that argument. Do you think that that's a misconception or do you think you're the, you're a minority in this situation? You know, I have, I have these conversations a lot. It's funny. Um, one, I want to take this opportunity to say, too, that I think coming from my perspective, I've even had a conversation with my boys or other colleagues about, you know, this kind of I don't want, sometimes they get into like oppression Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. Things dealing in terms like intersectionality and stuff like that. But I always say, you know, I always give much credence, much respect to black women, mm-hmm. right? It's no, as far as, you know, yes, as black folk, we all have a collective struggle and oppressive oppression, but black women go through it way much more severe, probably two, three times as worse than black men. And a lot of times we don't know because it goes unnoticed in a lot of ways because it's not covered in the media. It's mm-hmm. not covered in books. It's not covered in shows and movies as much as it is when the, the, the plight of the black male and how it's always been. Um, and so I think from that understanding, I always come, come from a place that when I see black women, I just always kind of like bow down to them in a way right mm-hmm. because you are the queens you, and even when we talk about things like civil rights and all that kind of stuff it's 
people like Martin Luther Kings and everyone who gets the plight, but never the black women who are really running right. everything, right. Uh, everything behind him. Um, and so when you hear these stories, you understand or you just, you know, converse and have a lot of black women in your circle. You just you just there's no way as a black male that you can go and say that I cannot be with a black woman for X, Y and Z reasons. Mm-hmm. Or if, if you are doing better than me, then that's amazing. And I need to step my game up because the way you got to this point, what you had to go through was probably just, you know, I can't even imagine. Right. Mm-hmm. In a lot of different ways. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I want to I want to I want to kind of try to speak for the fellas and big them up and be like, yo, you know, y'all. But I, as increasingly, I think there is this kind of insecurity within a lot of men mm-hmm. that I've been noticing. The older I've got, I've gotten when it comes to seeing a strong black woman and I'm talking about black men and black women in particular, when it comes to seeing a strong black women, woman and when a black male may feel like, you know, they may not have a job that's on par or whatever it is that they're like, they run away from it for mm-hmm. some reason. I, I can't point, I mean, to me, I just pointed to insecurities what it boils down to, um, but I don't think it's, it's, not, it's not right and I think that as black men we need to do a, a way better job as far as like being there for our black women right and understanding that what they go through is way 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 worse than what we go through and we should be supportive of them be that rock if we can be um, but then support comes in different ways too sure and I think a lot of times you think traditionally like economic based it's like oh she makes more money than me then I'm not good enough but no this isn't this is a new way that's the old way of thinking right right, right? it's not about a relationship is not just about money and I think um, you know my wife I say she makes way more than money than me she's in corporate right mm-hmm. she's a food scientist she has a PhD in food science and she, she works for Mars Chocolate, you know, people that make M&Ms. Um, but it does not, you know, as far as how I feel as a man, you know, how we, how our relationship is and whatever it is, I do not, um, I'm actually, you know, I'm, I love it. I love the fact that she makes more money than me in a lot of ways. <laughs> you know, it kind of takes some weight off my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not, it's nothing that we look at or it, it doesn't impede our relationship. She does, she's not like, oh, I make more money than you need to do this. You need to do that. It just, it's not a factor. We just look at it as one household. We're right. collective. The more money we have, the better for all of us and the better vacations we get to go Thank on together. You. Exactly. You know? <laughs> Take it back to church. One can chase a thousand. Exactly. Two exactly. Can chase 10,000. So uh-huh. I, I think if we start to see it from that perspective and from both sides, from, you you know, women not boiling it down to you don't make you need to make more money mm-hmm. and men not boiling it down to you make more money than me. And my ego is bruised because of that mm-hmm. and saying, OK, we bring our collective strengths. We put the pot together. And how do we build this life? Yeah. If we could start to look at it that way and move past the, the preconceived notions and the baggage and the hang ups and the insecurities. Mm-hmm. There's so much that can be done. Yeah. And I'm hoping that there are more examples and people are willing, especially black men, to be more open and say, no, she she makes more money than me, mm-hmm. but we're making it work. And this is how I think that that dialogue needs to happen mm-hmm. more. Yeah, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. So because I've, I've had conversations about this, too. And when it comes to one thing I've noticed is that and me and my wife have conversations about this, too, about interracial relationships is that it does look like black men are even though the numbers show not, you know, black black folks are still marrying and being with black folks mm-hmm. and white folks are still being with white folks. But when you look at the media and stuff like that, we see these interracial relationships. But more often than not, it's black men going with somebody that's not black. Right. But yet the, the most of the narratives of black women, even successful black women, is that they still kind of want a black man, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, what is, through your experience, how do you feel about that? Is that true? Do you still, do you want to be with a black man? Have you contemplated dating people outside of your race? What does that mean to you and things like that? Would you do it? You know, what's so interesting is there was all this talk, like chatter online when Meghan married Prince Harry. Yeah. You know, black men were like, you know, y- y'all are always bashing us so getting with somebody who's not black, but, you know, you're fawning over a situation. And I was laughing because I was looking around like, who? You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm talking to 
my friends who were well grounded and um, we didn't really think I mean, we had apathy about it. It wasn't like, you know, go ahead, girl. You didn't think either way. It was yeah. like, right, that's our situation. But I know I can speak for me and my personal circle of women, both professionally and personally, mm-hmm. um, black women deep down in their hearts. They want a black man. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, we and we have this vision of black love and what it can be and achieving and serving yeah. and building together. Um, and while there might be an openness to say, OK, we, we might have to explore and I've you know been out with people who don't look like me so mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I'm like that I've drawn a hard line yeah. but deep down it's what we want mm-hmm. and it rubs salt in a wound yeah. when that's what you want and that's where you aspire to and then you meet a black man who has all these ideas about who he thinks you are based on education mm-hmm. and credentials without getting to know you first yeah. um, so and, and I think too I had an interesting conversation um, with another like little brother of mine that mm-hmm. we, we both know I won't say the name <laughs> here but um, he said to me oh um, are you I think I was dating somebody at the time I can't remember but basically said, are you dating a white man? Mm-hmm. And I said, no. Why would you Why would you ask that? Yeah. And he said, because I just assumed you would be with somebody white. Mm. And it became a joke and we were laughing about it. But I, and a lot of women like me, get that a lot. Mm-hmm. Because of where, you know, the places that we've worked, the schools that we've gone to, that that's the, the default. Yeah. Um, and so I think that also, back to your original question, is another driver mm-hmm. of why people want a black man so badly. Yeah. Because they don't want to feed into this idea mm-hmm. like, but we knew that's the direction, you know, you would go in. So yeah. uh, the, the short answer is absolutely. I, yeah. I think we are we are committed to it with the realization that if we all want to get married, that may not be the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, and the I'm getting in, I'm getting real deep into this, but the, no, the, the levels become, well, if he's not black, can he at least be of color? Like mm. another minority. Oh, okay, yeah, not yeah. that, okay, you know, maybe. And, and part of that's just the what we talked about, the safe space of wanting to be able to come home and talk about your experiences mm-hmm. and commonality and know mm-hmm. so that somebody can relate to you mm-hmm. better. Um, so speaking for me personally is something when I imagine my life and what I see, yeah, I, I see somebody in, in my vision that looks like me. Yeah. Is it going to pan out that way? <laughs> We'll see. God can tell a better story than I can, but wholeheartedly, absolutely, that is what I am desiring. You know, a, 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 a black man who loves me and supports me for who I am. And we figure out, even if this is a, an unconventional situation, it works for us. Yeah. Um, and, and if it's not going to be that... Hopefully somebody else who at least has a minority yeah. experience. Yeah. For sure. I may get in trouble for this answer, but it's true. That, <laughs> no, that, is, a, that is how I it's feel. It's the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and even, you know, I see people when I'm on social media, I mean, you see people like Angela Rye and, and you know, um, Judge Faith. And I don't know, all these all these black women who are successful and, and they're single. And I'm like, what is going on, man? Mm-hmm. They say the same thing. They want black men and it's tough out here. And I'm just like, you know, I, I definitely say as, as, as a brother and all the brothers, y'all got to step up, man, for sure. Yeah. And it's... And, you know, as we all trade notes, um, it's like our own form of sociology, almost (laughs) like our interactions and experiences. And from a stepping up perspective, sometimes it's even difficult for somebody to ask you out. Mm. They they see everything that you've accomplished and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And they're like dropping all these hints. And it's like, it's very simple. Just say, would you like to have dinner? Would you like to have coffee? Just treat it normally, right? Yeah, just treat it a normal interaction because um, contrary to popular belief, every woman I know, is is wholeheartedly open to a situation where somebody may not make as much money as them. Mm-hmm. Especially at this level. I'm, you know, I'm yeah. like going to be 37 in a few 
few weeks. So, you know, at, at this point, it's just like a lot of the things that may have mattered in your 20s for me don't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's about figuring out you know, what works because, and I'll just say this to sisters, you can't have it both ways. You, you can't be like, okay, I want this career. I want all these things, but I'm not going to cook every day. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be around to do all the wifely things that my grandmother may have done. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that, I want it to be conventional in that you pay all the bills and you do X, Y, Z, because that's yeah. what my dad did. That, it doesn't work. You know, it, it, yeah. it has to go both ways. If mm-hmm. you're coming with an unconventional perspective about the role you're going to play, mm-hmm. then you got to be open and be flexible on the other end as well. So I think that I'll just speak to the sisters on that point. I yeah. think that's where we, we have to be um, flexible. And I'll try it for the dudes real quick too because I just feel like uh, a lot of times, again, with the traditional thinking, they guys feel like they don't have to do the cooking and cleaning, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like, I mean, for me, just the way my dad, he just, that's all he did, you know? I saw from that perspective, he was the one always cooking and cleaning. My mom was just like chilling, right? As a queen <laughs> she is. Um, so I grew up in a household where I saw the, the the man doing all the kind of domestic work. And so that's what I, that's what I do now, right? I do a lot of cooking, clean. I do the laundry, all that kind of stuff. And it's fine. Like, I'm not any less of a man mm-hmm. because I fold clothes or because I wash the dishes. And so I think as men, I think it's also okay that you can contribute, right, in other ways. This doesn't have to be financially or paying the bills, but like just as far as the, how, how the household um, is ran, you can do it in other ways and just be fine, you know? Uh, so I think also that narrative has to begin to change with a lot of guys. Even like, you know, I still, that's me, but my brothers, they still feel like that traditional, oh, they're trying to do it. So trying to talk to them, they, they knuckleheads. So it's not as, you know, it doesn't get through them as easy but that is my message for all the guys too like it's fine you know learn how to cook a meal you know wash some clothes wash wash the bed the sheets and all that kind of stuff know what good sheets look like you know (laughs) listen thread count is important okay don't come in here with these Walmart sheets like no thread count Uh -uh. that Egyptian cotton Mm -hmm. it's a real deal I'm I'm big on my sheets and my towel you should be you should (laughs) be you gotta get educated on the quality sheets you don't be sleeping on nothing rough like sandpaper (laughs) no (laughs) absolutely Absolutely not. So before we let you get out of here, mm-hmm. tell us what is on the horizon for Dr. Terrell Connor. What's on the horizon? Um, you know, as far as career wise, still working, trying to get that tenure. Well, I will get that tenure. Um, working on publications and research on that regard. Um, and right now I'm looking to expand, you know, with the podcast, looking to do some interesting things. Um, probably starting a blog with that, right? So if anybody, you know, you guys can check it out, uh, Um, And if, you know, if you feel like you want to contribute in any way, shoot me an email, podcast at gmail.com and like with topics ideas or if you want to be a blog contributor um because we feel like this is another way like i said i want to be able to have this information put out there where people can read it listen to it whatever it is or just be a part of it as well as a communal communal based effort um outside of that you know i'm gonna continue to do what i do at newark and, and things like that i want to figure out ways to expand in some way um right now you know i've been doing it for three years and so it's been great but now i want to figure out ways to make a a little bit bigger impact whether it's through some other kind of community organization collaborations with other folks I have my my eyes open to that and start trying to make those kind of moves soon too cool and outside of the website where can people find uh, the Black and Black and Highly Dangerous podcast and you online oh yeah yeah so yeah you can go on the website other than that you know we're pretty much try, I try to be everywhere so we're like on Spotify iTunes SoundCloud YouTube um, iHeartRadio wherever you can listen to a podcast we try to make it available to you and be easily accessible um, you can just email me Terrell a.connor at gmail.com and one of the things that you know with the podcast or with me as well is that like I said my goal is to always be visible to always be accessible so one of the things I really do is I always respond to emails right even if it's not the next day I always make uh, an effort to respond to your email so respond to, respond to your inquiries and all that kind of stuff 
love um because i'm here for you all um to be a service to you as any way i can so so reach out to me for sure well, I'm glad we finally do this. Yeah. I'm like so proud right now um, of just everything you've become and everything that you've done. I mean, you've, you've done you've done life right. No, and no. Uh, at one point, we're gonna have to break out those VHS tapes that I have. Oh no! You service speeches oh, go because no. we have them with the, the '90s haircut and all. Oh, we we no. have them. Trust me. Probably had a part of some. You know there was a part. You know there was a part. Turtleneck. Oh no! Bust those out, man. Yes. Trying so, to maintain my reputation of being cool. Listen, no, no. We we all we all have a story. Yeah, okay. We got a story. Those Poconos retreats. We oh no, nah, the Poconos. <laughs> but I'm. So so happy uh, we did this, and I'm so excited to see where the your research goes and your your academic work and the podcast and your community work. And kudos to you, no, black kudos man. Kudos to you too, kudos. my sister. Yeah, my queens. So to those of you out there, make sure you check out the BHD podcast. Check out Terrell online. Follow his work. Mm-hmm. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.